Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick? I'm doing great, uh, Sarah. How are you doing? I am surviving. It's kind of a special episode we have today to celebrate a special day. You know how much we love special episodes. We sure do. Um, so March 24th is World Tuberculosis Day. So we thought we would have on an awesome panel of experts on tuberculosis to talk a little bit about what it is and some impacts that it has had on our populations. And yeah, we're excited. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's uh, maybe not as exciting as uh, National Margarita Day, but you know, it still is uh, still is a good thing to talk about, right? It is. We already have passed National Margarita Day. That was in February. I know I missed it again. This dang (laughs) pandemic, it's just, it goes on and on and on, but it is nice to talk about something other than COVID. It is. Yes. Yes. And super excited today to have a couple of of guys that I work closely with uh, here at Nebraska Medicine, uh, Dr. Daniel Berlita who um, is also um, does some with the state for TB and kind of is a liaison with Heartland TB Center for us. And then uh, Trevor Van Schooneveld, who is my partner in non-tuberculous mycobacteria with a lot of overlap with TB and is also one of the infection prevention medical directors here at Nebraska Medicine amongst many other hats that he wears. So welcome guys. Thank you. Glad to be Hello. here. Yeah, happy to be here. Excited to talk about this. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. So um, I think we should start out with, um, I guess, we have listeners like myself. I come from a dental background. Um, our approach to tuberculosis is, um, you know, we'll reschedule you when you are better. <laughs> so I don't know much about it Um, so do we want to start by just kind of talking about what tuberculosis is go ahead Dan I'll let you start sure can I can I start you with a question so how many people in the world drink margarita Um, on the rocks with salt that's the only way to do it well, how many? How many though? I mean, how like, many people drink margaritas? Yeah, like worldwide, you know, like like if we're talking about World Margarita Day versus World TB Day, World, you know, <laughs> we we do think like about a quarter of the people in the world have been infected with tuberculosis at some point in their lives, you know. Wow. So so it's just like not everybody's showing signs and symptoms. Of it, but that's that's about uh, that's about as big of a reach as as you'd find, you know, by a by a bacteria at least. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's an infectious disease, you know, but it, it's an infectious disease that doesn't always, you know, like uh, manifest in a very visible way. So that's probably why why people don't necessarily know or care that much about it anymore. But it's, it's a big killer worldwide. I mean, it, it kills a lot of people still, so including in the United States. 
Yeah, I think it impacts a lot more people than drink margaritas was your point, right? Yeah. Maybe should have used, I don't know, I don't know, uh, whiskey or beer or something because, you know, I don't think too many people outside of the Western Hemisphere are probably drinking a lot of tequila. (laughs) Yes, very true statement. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, thanks. So it's um, obviously an important thing. And I suspect most of the people in the world, when they think of tuberculosis, the first thought on their mind is to consult infectious disease. Um, But there's uh, so it impacts a lot of people, as you guys said, where is this impact and why should us in the United States care? Go ahead, Trevor, I'll let you take that one. Well, I think in the U.S., TB rates have been continually dropping for the last couple of decades. Uh, But in other parts of the world, TB is highly endemic, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, Southeastern Asia. And then if you go to Central Central Asia and Russia and the former Russian republics, uh, what you find is not just tuberculosis, but multidrug resistant tuberculosis. And uh, those organisms and infections are just a plane right away. And there are a lot of people who come to the U.S. from other countries uh, as students, immigrants, refugees, Uh, And they bring the infectious problems of their home country to our country. And uh, if you look, uh, the majority of the TB cases in the U.S. are from people who were born in other countries. That's because TB is a disease that, as Dan mentioned, about a quarter of people become infected and are infected in the world. uh, And that initial infection may not result in any symptoms. And so they may harbor tuberculous bacteria in their body, and then it may... um, uh, occur later and manifest later with signs and symptoms of infection. And so um, it's actually a very important public health problem that we encounter. It's much slower moving than COVID, um, but it is a major public health problem, not just for the U.S., but it's a much bigger problem worldwide. So when I think about tuberculosis, I often think about the movie Tombstone and Doc Holliday. Right. That is that the classic. We look at signs and symptoms of tuberculosis. Would that be classic signs uh, and symptoms? That's a great question. I love Tombstone. That's one of my favorite uh, oh, yeah. westerns. So uh, you know what did what did Doc have? He had cough, which is a symptom of active tuberculosis infection. He had uh, certainly seemed to be wasting away, uh, losing weight, which is another symptom. He didn't complain of fever, but that can certainly be a symptom of tuberculosis. Uh, Sputum production and coughing up blood can also be symptoms. He had that. Um, And that's for pulmonary tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is a very interesting disease that there are many other manifestations that you can can see. But uh, he was sort of, um, I think, capturing at least some of the appearance of pulmonary tuberculosis, which back when he had it, there was no therapy. Yeah, it is so, a great movie. Great movie. Yes. Love yes. that movie. There's so um, many go things ahead, to Sarah. Quote. So what are the signs and symptoms of non-pulmonary tuberculosis? That's, uh, you know, tuberculosis is a great mimicker. It, it can basically uh, look like uh, any, any other and more common diseases for a while. You know, uh, like uh, many times it gets confounded with like the Uh, gastrointestinal disease like Crohn's, uh, you know, uh, irritable bowel for a while until it becomes obvious that it's it's actually more than that. 
many times because of that it gets treated as something that some, something that it is not you know and then sometimes it makes the the progression even faster um, but basically you know if you think about TB you know you you think about a disease that can appear pretty much in any any part of the body so we have T, TB of the bone we have TB of the brain we have TB of you know the skin of the lymph nodes so so the various manifestations you know I'd, I'd say you know like the most frequent ones outside of of the pulmonary tuberculosis would be the tuberculosis of the lymph nodes what we we used to call scrofula, you know, years ago, and genitourinary tuberculosis, the tuberculosis of the uh, of the urinary tract, uh, and and bone TB, including spine TB, which uh, which used to be a big big problem. So, yeah, but we we see we and we still see um, people with uh, with tuberculosis in in the most amazing locations. And, and generally it takes a while to recognize that as being tuberculosis because it's not so evident as the pulmonary TB is. I think Dan brings up a great point there that uh, most people are trained to recognize pulmonary TB. It has very typical findings, um, but the other manifestations of TB are much more difficult to diagnose. Um, they present much more indolently than other sort of bacterial infections. And uh, the, the methods we have for detecting them take time uh, to provide results or aren't that sensitive for detecting them. And so, yeah, I totally agree with Dan. The, you know, we see TB of the meninges. We see TB of the peritoneum. Um, you can see TB in the adrenal glands, uh, TB in the pleural space. There's so many different manifestations of tuberculosis. Um, and they can be a bit protean and they don't uh, often tip people off in the same way when you have a staph infection or a streptococcal pneumonia. It's very obvious. Uh, these tuberculosis infections are much more indolent and slowly occurring. And so people, it doesn't often raise their sensitivity as much. Yeah, thanks guys. That's a great discussion on it. Going back to a little bit of the basics of TB, I, um, Trevor had mentioned that it's a bacteria. How is it different from like a staph or a strep that people might uh, have heard of? I think some people might be surprised to hear that tuberculosis is a bacteria. Yeah, I can go ahead. Go, go, you go ahead. Take, I, I was going to say one of the one of the things about tuberculosis is very slow growing and uh, it's very hardy. It has uh, what well, we have a cell wall full of mycolic acids, and you're about tuberculosis described as acid fast bacilli, and that's because um, uh, of its staining characteristics when you do the, uh, uh, the acid fast stain. Um, the stain doesn't wash out with acid because it gets stuck in the mycolic acids there. And so um, it has a unique cell wall that makes it particularly a bit hardier. Um, it can survive things that normal bacteria can't survive. Uh, when we're preparing actually a sputum culture, we add some chemicals to kill off all the regular bacteria. Uh, and the mycobacteria, the tuberculous bacteria survive. Um, and so they're pretty hardy bacteria, but they grow very slowly, typically multiplying about once every 24 hours, where a regular bacteria is going to double about once every 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah, and, and to make things worse, um, it, it also tends to, 
uh, to locate uh, in the cells, like intracellular. So that makes it extremely difficult for even for some of our well, medications, anti-tuberculous agents to actually kill the bacteria because it's much more difficult to, to penetrate and kill an intracellular uh, you know, agent like tuberculosis. So yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a slow, not only a slow growing but smart and uh, slow you know very difficult to kill bug. So. Yeah, so by slow growing, um, you guys are thinking like uh, you know most people are used to having you know some infection and the doctor calls them back in twenty four or forty eight hours and says hey you have this staph or strep infection, um, but frequently with these we're not calling people back until weeks later, right? And this certainly complicates getting um, antimicrobial susceptibilities because the organism has to grow in order for us to get most of our antimicrobial susceptibilities. So none of this is fast, right? Yeah, and, and it, it, um, it, th this is basically well, an area where I, I, and I think, you know, Trevor, uh, you know, maybe wants to comment more on that, but we need to make progress in general in, uh, in microbiology. With, with our methods of detecting some of those those pathogens because the old you know method of just culturing something you know making a culture you know out of a tb you know purulent you know specimen is something that takes weeks it, it really does and so so we did move toward more molecular detection of tuberculosis that only works in in certain instances and like you said you know most importantly gives us no no immediate information about what what the bacteria is susceptible to. You know, we're, we're still very far from uh, from having a good you know type of uh, uh, detection of uh, drug susceptibilities, other than the rifampin. You know, maybe uh, something that can be applied. You know, like in every single hospital, we we don't have that. You know, we have some specialized centers that can do some specific drug susceptibilities, and even those take many many weeks. And so. That's uh, that's definitely something they would like to do better, as, as I'm sure is the case with many other bacteria. So. so with with this organism that is so hardy, I'm sure that impacts what treatment options are. So would you guys like to talk a little bit about that and maybe how it differs from pulmonary TB to non-pulmonary? Yeah, I I'll. I'll start on that. So, unfortunately, the treatment of uh, of tuberculosis started in dark ages with some like very limited medication options, very limited combinations that we had, and generally, many of those people um, either did not survive tuberculosis or needed surgery or, you know, some uh, some methods that you know nowadays we would we would not consider adequate. Um, we did get, uh, I guess, like better medications to treat tuberculosis, but the treatments for tuberculosis are so long. I mean, so unlike any, any regular bacterial infection, you know, we're talking at the minimum like six months, nine months for the, for the drug resistant bacteria, you know, more than one year, 18, 24 months. Those, those were not something uh, that... Uh, that helped us that much, in, you know, in controlling tuberculosis global, you know, epidemic, like all, everywhere in the world. So the I think the fight in the in the last several years was to find 
not only better medications, but shorter regimens. When you have shorter regimens, you have a better chance for people to actually take those regimens. You have a better gen chance for them to improve quicker also. And, you know, frankly, to be more compliant, you know, we, we are able to, to track in the United States, most of the people with active tuberculosis and, and make sure they take their medications in time. That's not the case in other countries. When we're talking about, you know, the latent forms of tuberculosis, we don't really usually uh, have the cap the capacity to track everybody who takes the medication. So if you have somebody who's going to take the medication for six months or nine months, as we used to, that chance of, uh, of treatment, um, you know, failure is, is, is very, very high because frankly, people just don't take the medication for that long sometimes. Yeah, I think one of the things that's unique about tuberculosis is that we use multiple antibiotics Typically, if you have a staph infection and you know it's staph, you'll give one antibiotic and it'll get better. In tuberculosis, we actually start typically with four antibiotics um, and we'll continue those four antibiotics for a couple of months until we know the susceptibility data. And then we'll drop down to two antibiotics, isoniazid and rifampin, that will continue either for another four months or even out to a total of nine months, depending on the type of TB that they have. Um, but the reason we do this is because tuberculosis, when treated with one antibiotic, can become resistant to that antibiotic pretty quickly. And we want to avoid creating or developing antibiotic resistance. Um, another way that tuberculosis can develop resistance is if you don't take your drugs regularly. And so I think that makes uh, Dan's point really important about making sure people do take the medications. Um, and then for the site of infection, it's interesting, other than if you have cavitary disease, we don't generally treat it very differently, whether it's lymph nodes or peritoneal or pleural or um, there's some uh, subtle treat treatment differences with uh, uh, tuberculous meningitis, uh, but for most of them, it's the same drugs, unless somebody shows resistance to those drugs. And then we start to get into some very interesting and different regimen. And then like Dan, like Dan mentioned, the treatments we've been using, we've been using for decades. Uh, and haven't really changed or upgraded those much until I think we're going to have some new regimens that are right on the horizon for the guidelines. Yeah, thanks, guys, for that, that good discussion. So lots to unpack in there. So slow-growing organism have to treat with multiple drugs for an extended period of time. And, and so breaking that down, um, Dan mentioned something about latent uh, tuberculosis versus active tuberculosis. What exactly do, do you guys mean when you're using those phrases? Yeah, so, so latent is a little bit of a misnomer, you know, so uh, in a sense, it's reassuring um, if, you, if you discover that somebody um, has you know, a positive test for tuberculosis, but they're not actively coughing, you know, they're not contagious to other people, but that, uh, that bacteria uh, that is hiding in somebody, you know, somebody's lung is not necessarily entirely latent. It's actually metabolically active. It's a live bacteria. It's not just an exposure, an old exposure to tuberculosis. So, you know, some people, some people believe that. So basically when you get exposed to tuberculosis, um, most of the times you inhale the bacteria and then it, uh, it lands in your lymph nodes from the lung 
you know, and uh, and that's where your body tries to tries to keep the bacteria inactive. So, you know, it's and it's not really a dead bacteria at that point. It's a bacteria. If you do studies, you know, with with some uh, advanced methods like imaging and uh, uh, you know metabolic studies, you will see that that bacteria is lurking there. It's trying to to reproduce. So from that state, you know, which is what we typically call latent tuberculosis, when somebody's immune system gets uh, gets low for for some reason, or sometimes without without a clear explanation, you know, that bacteria becomes active and transforms into active tuberculosis, and either in the lungs or it can even migrate in other parts of the body, and that's and that's when you have the contagious form of tuberculosis, the one that we've been talking about, and so. You know, to put it in perspective, uh, we are talking about 7,000 to 8,000 cases of active in the United States versus more than 10 million people of, uh, that have latent. So that's, that's kind of like the magnitude of, uh, you know, of uh, tuberculosis reach, and not all of them will develop active tuberculosis, but many of them have the potential to develop tuberculosis. So I, I think that's that's really important to know because we will never defeat tuberculosis or eliminate tuberculosis if we don't eliminate the reservoirs. So I don't know if you would have an answer to this question, but out of those 10 million people that have latent TB, how many of those do you think are not aware that they have it at all? Hmm, that's a good question. Great question. I, I should, uh, you know, I should be able to, you know, to find a better answer to this, but I, I'm just going to say uh, the majority of it, of them. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I mean, the, we definitely don't test everybody for tuberculosis. We test some, uh, some groups at risk, including, uh, you know, through our immigration mechanism, like as Trevor said, you know, that's, uh, that's the, one of the biggest port of entry in our reservoirs in the United States. Um, we do test, you know, healthcare workers. You know, we do test some populations at risk, but we kind of gave up on testing uh, everybody that's going to like nursing homes or everybody who's, I don't know, working on the food services because, you know, a decision to test is usually a decision to treat. So. Um, we're not aware of everybody who's, who has latent tuberculosis, but if we would keep in line with, with our current strategy of testing the, the groups at risk, we would have a pretty good idea of, uh, of, of you know, that, or, you know, how many would have that. I don't think we're, I don't think we're doing like perfect in that respect though. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it really depends on where you're from, right? I mean, in the US, I think we do a decent job and are pretty aggressive, uh, but in countries where it's endemic, uh, you know, it's highly variable how much they look for, even if they look for latent tuberculosis, uh, most of them don't. Um, and so it's more in our country where we do screen those who are high, higher risk. Um, uh, that we have a, at least a little bit of a better sense um, of what our, our, you know, what percent are aware. 
Yeah, and I think that builds into the name a little bit. Maybe the bug itself isn't so latent, but we think of latent as terms of asymptomatic for the most part. So I think a lot of those people won't really have any clue that they have it. Um, and so that's certainly interesting. Um, what numbers, let's just say somebody has latent TB, what's their lifetime risk of then developing TB? It's, uh, it's in the percentage points. You know, it's, it's much higher in the first years when they, when they uh, come from, like, for example, for, uh, for people who immigrate, we know the highest risk is in, in the first five to 10 years after they immigrate. You know, it has to do with, with uh, socioeconomic status for sure, uh, but there might, there might be some unknowns there. However, more than a third of, the, of uh, people who immigrate with latent TB will develop tuberculosis from the ones who develop active TB will develop tuberculosis after 10 years. So, so it's still important to, to detect that, that reservoir. But I don't, I don't think that number that you're asking about, Rick, is clear. It's in the percentage points, but I, I don't know if that is is something that we, you know, we we judge the same now as, as we did like 10 years ago. To be it, it really depends also on the patient, right? And, and right. that some patients are much higher risk. If you say have HIV. Uh, mm -hmm. and have latent tuberculosis, your likelihood of going on to develop active tuberculosis is probably in the 25 to 30%, 50% range. Mm -hmm. I was trying to find the numbers. I had it somewhere, but can't seem to find it. Oh, here it is. Yeah. So if you have HIV and have been infected with tuberculosis, so 7 to 10% per year will develop tuberculosis. Right. If you have tuberculosis and diabetes, about 30% over a lifetime. And if you have no risk factors, it ends up being about, like Dan said, it's highest in the first two years, which is about, I've seen anywhere from two to 5%. And then the number quoted in this, which I think was from the WHO, is about 10% over a lifetime. And so who you are and what medical problems you have also influence the likelihood that your tuberculosis will progress from a latent infection to an active infection. Right. Which makes sense why when people have been in the U.S. for you know years after they've left their endemic country, they may get it because we tend to accumulate health problems and, and maybe some degree of immune compromise as, as time goes on. So, so that certainly makes sense. Um, how do we screen for latent TB? What's the, what's the methods that we have available to look for that? As there's two methods. Um, there's a tuberculin skin test or the PPD test. And then there are two different what we call interferon gamma release assays, which measure, uh, uh, basically they measure if your immune system has seen tuberculosis. And that's what all the tests do is they look for what we call cell-mediated immunity uh, to tuberculosis proteins or antigens. The tuberculin skin test uh, is relatively affordable, it's cheap, uh, but you have to stick it in somebody's arm and then you have to bring them back in two to three days to then measure to see if there's induration. It's also a uh, sort of milieu of proteinaceous materials and false positive results are relatively common, particularly in people who've had BCG vaccine, which is used in many third world countries. 
the interferon gamma release assays have fewer false positives. They aren't really any more sensitive, uh, but they still have some false positives. And so um, we do see that occasionally happening. And particularly in people who come from other countries um, or have had BCG vaccines, we really prefer the interferon gamma release assays or IGRAs um, as they avoid a lot of those false positives. Um, and, and so what, the, what we'll do is screen people who are at increased risk with typically an interferon gamma release assay. If that's positive, then we'll assess them. Well, hopefully we've assessed them for symptoms before, but then we'll assess them for symptoms. Uh, and if they don't have symptoms, we'll get a chest x-ray uh, because people can sometimes have a chest x-ray finding suggestive of tuberculosis without significant clinical symptoms. And if all of that is unremarkable, usually we'll say, oh, well, you don't have symptoms, your chest x-ray looks fine, but your immune system shows that you've been exposed, then we'll offer them therapy. Dan, um, I don't know if you want to have any comments on the, on the testing we do for latent tuberculosis. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, again, is one of the areas where, where we have uh, some, some work to do because there is no gold standard for for latent tuberculosis, you know, we, we don't really detect, um, you know, the, the bacteria, you know, lurking in, in somewhere in the body, in the lymph nodes. We just detect the, uh, as Trevor said, you know, the indirect evidence, you know, the, the response of our immune system to it. And so in that respect, you know, our tests got much better. And this interferon gamma release assay is, is a big step, step forward, but they're not perfect. And we, we all recognize it you know, you have to analyze those in, in the clinical context. Any test, and, and those are a perfect example, you know, they have a completely different value for somebody who has a high chance to have the disease. So like they're way more predictive in somebody who already has an elevated risk of disease. So that they're more reliable, you know, I, I would say in that situation. So um, the like the, the blood test analyzes, uh, you know, your response against the cocktail of antigens, they're called ESAT and CFP from the tuberculosis bacteria. And we keep improving this test. You know, hopefully at some point we'll have, uh, we'll have something that's close to 100%. But as it is, it's pretty good at, at detection with, with some hiccups, you know, like Trevor said, with some, some uh, false positives that need to be interpreted in the clinical context. But I would say, you know, for, for such a difficult to detect disease, it's important to, to, to screen with an adequate test and then make, make the clinical judgment, actually who is at risk for progression, who needs treatment. We need to find and eliminate those reservoirs, so. So then um, once you've tested and potentially identified somebody with latent TB, um, what are, I guess, what are some restrictions or do you have them avoid certain risk factors if you can? Um, like in healthcare, are there restrictions for healthcare personnel that would potentially have latent TB? You know, for latent TB, uh, the reason, the reason uh, they, they get evaluated, um, you know, the reason healthcare workers get evaluated uh, is actually to, to identify uh, any potential risk of active tuberculosis. You know, that's, that's somebody who we do not want to, uh, to work and potentially transmit the disease. 
somebody who clearly has latent disease can can still work. I mean, because they're not contagious at all to other people. Um, we, you know, we again, you know, like we offer treatment who to pretty much everybody who would benefit from treatment, like their risk would not be uh, higher than the benefit, which um, in general with the newer treatments, you know, the risk is relatively relatively low. So no, latent, latent tuberculosis, we want to know who has latent tuberculosis because of what Rick, Rick said, you know, their lifelong risk of developing tuberculosis active, you know, we want to treat that, eliminate that. And we also want to make sure they don't have active disease. In fact, you know, this is a very strong contraindication for treating somebody to latent, for latent disease. I mean, you have to make sure they don't have active because the treatments are different and, and you can induce a lot of resistance if you treat somebody with latent and they actually have active. So, yeah, I, I, I think in, for people who have latent, um, we need to give them the right information, you know, for them to, to understand why we want to treat that because they will, they will not feel anything, you know, and they will not know why you want to treat them. You know, they don't know of them being sick with anything. Obviously, they're not coughing. They're not, they don't have fevers, chills, night sweats. They're not wasting away. They're not tombstone, you know, but, <laughs> but, but there is a reason to treat them. So. <laughs> Yeah, one more thing on so on latent TB before we, we move on from there. You'd mentioned BCG vaccine and something difference between the skin testing and the interferon gamma release assays. What is BCG? And, you know, I've never gotten that vaccine. Why haven't I gotten it? Yeah, so it stands for what? Bacille? Uh, yeah, there you go. Dan knows better, but it's a, it's basically an attenuated strain of tuberculosis and it's given uh, mostly to young uh, uh, infants to prevent tuberculosis meningitis. It has a small amount of effect at decreasing tuberculosis transmission, but its main thing it does is protect, protects uh, young children under two from tuberculosis meningitis, which is uh, if they get tuberculosis, uh, devastating and often highly lethal in, in countries where tuberculosis is endemic. And so uh, it's used in many countries where there uh, is TB is endemic um, and not used in say the US or Canada or Western Europe. So I don't know if you have anything else to say about that, Dan. Yeah, I, I think many of the countries that used to uh, administer BCG don't do it anymore. I, I think Mexico is, is one, of the, one of the countries that I can bring as example. Um, some of the practices related to BCG, you know, obviously they, they had some, uh, some um, prevention, you know, weight, especially uh, like you said, for kids. Some countries were doing a series of BCG. Uh, for, I, I received two BCG vaccines, you know, a long time ago. And, you know, I basically, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of the, <laughs> you know, live examples of uh, <laughs> how that works and that how you get screened, you know, when you come and, you know, immigrate to the United States, but um, is basically not having something else to, to 
uh, fight tuberculosis endemic status in other countries. That's that's what it has been used for. Now, in medical you know terms, we do use BCG for other things, specifically for bladder cancer, right? So mm -hmm. we do yep. infusions with with BCG installations with BCG, uh, which is helpful in uh, in helping uh, kill some cancers, I guess. So and so. Not surprisingly, some of some of the people who um, have received BCG, very few of them, but but it's still possible. They do develop systemic reactions with with this bacteria, and sometimes those those reactions need to be treated. Sometimes even with antibiotics. So it's it's an attenuated form of of TB, but it's it's still a bacteria. Was there ever a time that vaccine was used in the United States? Like, would any older adults have gotten that as a standard vaccine years and years ago? I don't think so. I don't know if it's used ever in the U.S. Okay. Yeah, I don't know of anything either. So thanks for that explanation. So, um, so moving on. So active TB, we've talked about the symptoms um, of active TB, and we've talked about that... Uh, um, that people that have latent TB can later on progress to active disease. So it's important to screen people. Um, so somebody comes in and they look like Doc Holliday and they're, you know, they come into my clinic or they show up in the ED. What do I do? What, what, uh, what steps do I need to take? Because you guys have said this is contagious. Yeah. So that's just, uh, this is one of those pathogens when we talk about airborne transmission, this concept of airborne transmission, whether that's a real concept we should continue to utilize or not, we can argue about for many hours. Uh, but this is one of those pathogens where uh, it is infectious and it is infectious in small aerosols that can remain in the air for prolonged periods of time. Now, it's not super infectious. When I think about airborne, highly infectious pathogens, I think about measles mm -hmm. or chickenpox, which are viruses that can float 40, 50, 60 feet away. Uh, for tuberculosis, um, it certainly can remain airborne in these uh, small respiratory particles for a long period of time. Uh, and so when we encounter people where we're concerned about tuberculosis, we generally manage them using what we would call standard airborne precautions, which is putting them in negative pressure, uh, wearing an N95 respirator uh, to filter out those particles when we interact with the patient. We're not worried about contact transmission. We don't have to wear gloves. We don't have to wear gowns. Um, but we do put them in there out of an abundance of caution. Uh, if you look at tuberculosis transmission, though, it's very interesting, even amongst households uh, where people live together for long periods of time, uh, you know, it's only about 50%-ish around that that actually are found to have infection. And that's because it's, there's more to the story than just, I got exposed to the bacteria. There's an immune-mediated clearance. There's innate immunity, which may clear the bacteria when you're exposed. But in healthcare settings, um, and in congregate settings, be it schools, uh, homeless shelters, other places, we generally don't want people with active pulmonary tuberculosis hanging around those places unless they're in, you know, particular precautions with negative air and uh, N95 respirators. That, that reminds me, we, um, we were talking um, 
recently with with some uh, school nurses. You know, there's there's always a lot of anxiety if an active TB case, you know, ends ends up being diagnosed. You know, somebody in the school system. Yeah. Um, the truth is, like Trevor said, you know, there is there is certainly a risk there, but the risk is not like measles or you know. So only only few of of the people who have been in the neighborhood of somebody with active TB will develop TB. Definitely when I'm talking about household contacts and, and close contact, there will be way more of those. But as in many other things, you know, like as in, as in real life, you know, sometimes 80% of, uh, of the work is done by 20%. We have this concept of super spreaders in, in TB too. For some reason, it looks like some people are way more infectious than others. And, and when they analyze like big clusters, like in, in Texas or in, in other places, they, they really came to conclusion that, again, about 20% of the cases of TB are responsible for more than 80% of transmission of active TB. So that, that induces this, this super spreader, you know, like theory that we, we had in other. Uh, and there are some forms of tuberculosis that are uh, essentially more contagious than others. Like, you know, you could have pulmonary TB, but as long as you don't have cavitary lesions, you don't produce that much, you know, bacteria to, to spread everywhere. If you have TB of the larynx, then you're very infectious. You, you, can, you can spread a lot of it, you know, so. Right. And then other forms of TB, say if you have TB restricted to the peritoneal space or the, you know, even sometimes the pleural space, as long as there's not pulmonary involvement, those people, usually aren't infectious. We'll manage them where we'll put them in isolation until we can prove that they don't have, uh, that they're not infectious. But uh, those patients are usually not infectious unless you're going to aerosolize their peritoneal fluid or their pleural fluid, which usually we don't. So. And then, so you, you have the patient come in and so you appropriately put them in their airborne isolation. Um, how do you evaluate them from there? Uh, how, you know, send them for chest x-ray, CT scan, get specimens from them. What about the blood test and the skin test that we talked about? So what would be part of your evaluation and what would you bank on for either making a diagnosis or ruling them out in, in terms, especially in terms of isolation, if they end up staying in the hospital a little longer? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I think one of the things, uh, you know, we do order quantifurons and tuberculin skin tests on patients, but those don't rule out or rule in infectious tuberculosis. They just show immune exposure. And we've had patients where they had active, particularly non-pulmonary TB, and their quantifurons were negative, and that can actually lead people away from the diagnosis. So to rule out infectious tuberculosis, we need respiratory tract Assessments. And there's two ways to approach it. You can, the, the traditional way is to get three AFB smears. Um, and if you have three negative AFB smears, you're considered not infectious. And that's, um, you know, does that mean they don't have TB? No, you have to culture. They could certainly have tuberculosis, uh, but they have a low level of tuberculosis below what we generally consider infectious. That was traditionally what we did. We'd say you get three sputums at least eight hours apart, at least one AM specimen, because the AM specimen is a little more likely to be positive. And as long as you had three negative smears, we'd let you out of isolation. What we've added to that is we have a direct molecular test that we can do on the sputum, uh, TB-PCR. 
And uh, different centers have different rules about how many of these you need to get out of isolation. We require two negative TB-PCRs uh, to get out of isolation. And so that can be a little faster because you only need two, not three. Um, but um, that, again, doesn't rule out active pulmonary TB. It really just rules out infectious active pulmonary tuberculosis. And, and that's that's something that we didn't have like years ago, and and it was a pain, you know, really, yes. like waiting to either in, induce sputum or have somebody do bronchoscopy to obtain specimens just to see if somebody is infectious, and you know, and and then waiting to see for hours, you know, how the acid fast smear will turn out to be, you know. Right, because nobody ever does acid fasteners on the weekend. And so you get to <laughs> Thursday, Friday, and then you're waiting for number three until Monday. And so, <laughs> yes. So if you have someone test out of airborne isolation, then if they have still have active TB, do you keep them admitted to the hospital for some treatment before sending them home or... So, so there are some rules with that in, in public health. Um, first of all, you know, they have to show some evidence that they're improving, you know, on treatment. Uh, the reality is some of them can have positive smears for a long time. Um, you know, we, you don't always get three negative smears to remove somebody from isolation. Um, you, you have to, to show that, first of all, if you discharge them to home or not also depends on some, some factors. For example, if they go home, are they gonna be around young kids? Are they gonna be around you know, uh, suppressed individuals that are at high risk of, of getting that? And, and maybe they've not been exposed previously. You know? So we don't really, we don't tend to, to discharge people if they can infect a young kid at home before we make sure they're not infectious. So that would mean, you know, they need to be on treatment for at least 14 days. They need to show, you know, their acid fast are negative or, or at least significantly improved, you know. So those are the rules. They, but, but just uh, to, to make things more complicated, many, many people do not get three negative smears like right away after we start treatment, especially with the complex population that we see nowadays, you know, immunosuppressed, diabetic, you know, that might take a long time. So then we have to to make some judgments, you know, what environment can we discharge this type of patient to, so. Yeah, I think I'd add to what Dan said. Uh, I agree with all of his comments. Um, my general approach is uh, TB is mostly an outpatient treatment. And so the sooner I can get people with TB infectious or not out of my hospital, the happier I am. Because often the people uh, at their home have already been exposed. Now, if they have people in there, uh, that is a complicated issue to sort out is who's in the home? Uh, what age are they? Are they going to continue to be exposed? Because there are some things where public health really does have to help us out with um, uh, sorting out how do we give the medicines? How do we make sure others don't get exposed? How do we make sure they're not going to, you know, schools or malls or things like that? Uh, and so that's where public health really can help us. And I think that's one area where, uh, you know, it's unfortunate uh, with COVID, but public health has just been overwhelmed with work. And so uh, I think the support for tuberculosis management has just been eroded because there aren't enough people to manage both COVID and 
all the other public health stuff they have to do. It's just overwhelmed them uh, with labor. Um, and, you know, we haven't invested a lot in our public health infrastructure uh, up until COVID. And so, um, again, I think this is where it really becomes a, a something that I really appreciate public health's role because I can give, I can prescribe a medication, but it's the public health nurse, the TB nurse that's out there making sure the patient takes the medication and making sure the patient isn't going out and exposing other people um, when they have active pulmonary TB and haven't come out of isolation like Dan talked about. Yes. So in the United States, we have what's called DOT, directly observed therapy, which we strive to do for pretty much all the cases uh, of active tuberculosis, specifically for the contagious ones, you know, like pulmonary tuberculosis. Uh, for, for, for the reasons that uh, uh, Trevor mentioned, you know, you, you, you can prescribe medications all you want, but if you don't uh, make sure uh, of the follow-up, then that patient may not take the medication, may infect other people, may develop multi-drug resistant tuberculosis later. So treatment in the United States is DOT and public health is, is essential in, in that. And so uh, continuity in public health is, is of great help with that. And that's something that unfortunately in the midst of COVID pandemic, there was so much burnout that we, we have problems at all levels in public health. Thank you both for that. And as medical director for employee health, I certainly appreciate getting people into isolation and then keeping TB out of the hospital. So I don't have to do too many, too many tests for, for latent TB and, and, and my colleagues. So that certainly is, is nice. Um, you both do a lot of education around tuberculosis and whatnot to learners of, of all areas. And so what we have in the United States is we have a somewhat not common disease that can present somewhat similar to somebody that has pneumonia or maybe a COPD exacerbation or something along those lines that you really have to have a, some sort of a uh, index of suspicion to, you, ha you can't just get this result from ordering routine tests that we order each and every day. So what do you tell learners as far as these are things that I really kind of look at when I'm looking at a case that makes me think of TB? We've talked about places that it's endemic that they might be from, but what about some of the, maybe something the patient tells you, maybe their history or, or where they've traveled or maybe what the imaging looks like or something that gives you ideas that you're like, yes, I think we really need to think about it here. Dan, I don't know. Do you want to take the, I'm, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, you you are a much uh, but much uh, more uh, experienced teacher than, than I am. But I, I think I'm, I'm well, the way I'm seeing tuberculosis is uh, is basically a disease that is rare, but you know it it's definitely something that has some you know specifics uh, that you can uh, you know you can rely on to. You know, at least at least make you kind of like suspicious of it. Now you may be suspicious of tuberculosis, and then you may be in a place of Nebraska, and then you know, four times out of five, even if you have all the right signs and symptoms, this will still turn out that you need to send to Dr. Stalin and Dr. Bachelor clinic for non-tuberculous mycobacteria you know, <laughs> for, for, for histoplasma, you know, for that reason. But but um, 
you know, if, if you have somebody who um, has some risk factors, you know, either by, um, you know, being exposed, being born or being exposed to an, to an area where tuberculosis is endemic, um, and you have some signs of, and symptoms of chronic illness, uh, and you have some typical findings on the, you know, on the imaging of the lungs, and, you know, that, that, that adds up, basically. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not a perfect science, I would say, but, but uh, be aware of where tuberculosis is coming from, and some of the typical manifestations, and then be on watch for anything that is unusual enough to make you think about about granulomatous disease and, and things like that. You know, that's for active. For latent, I think just do your best to capture everybody who might be in a risk risk situation where where testing for tuberculosis is indicated. Yeah. So, yeah. I uh, I agree with you, Dan. I think you hit some of the key things. You know, you want to think about the epidemiology. Are there risk factors for TB? Do they come from a country where TB is endemic? Uh, they've been around people who have TB. So you think about the epidemiology. And then like Dan said, you think about the symptoms, right? There are certain symptoms, you know, the Doc Holiday symptoms. Most people are going to think about that, right? And uh, and so and there are certain imaging findings. If you find a pulmonary cavity, you're going to think, oh, well, it might be TB. And like Dan said, a lot of those in Nebraska, they are TB. It's more common it's not TB than it is TB in Nebraska. Uh, but if you were to say practice in somewhere like India, it would be, you know, TB, 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 TB. Um, and then it maybe be something else. <clears throat> but I think the place where, and this is, I think, the place where I have stumbled at times is where you have somebody who uh, you don't think about TB. Uh, they have some syndrome and you've treated them and they aren't getting better or things aren't looking the way that they normally do. Um, and it's the, I think the most dangerous patient as a guy who does healthcare epi in hospital infection control is the TB case that nobody thinks it's TB. And those are the ones that spread TB and expose lots of people and you make the diagnosis very late. And so, you know, you just, like Dan said, have to have sort of that, um, that trigger in your brain that says, hey, there's something here that doesn't add up. There are still symptoms. There are certain clinical findings that I'm not explaining with my typical bacterial tests. The patient's not getting better with my typical treatments. So I really need to expand what I'm thinking about. And, you know, if the epi fits TB, boy, you know, particularly knowing that some of the, you know, the tests we have for pulmonary TB are pretty good. The tests we have for diagnosing TB in other sites are really bad. I mean, and the, or sensitivities in the 30%. And so, you know, for diagnosing pleural and meningeal TB and things like that, uh, genitourinary, it's often, boy, it looks like it. We did a biopsy or have a piece of tissue that suggests it. And so let's just give some therapy and see if they get better. And so it is really a hard diagnosis to make in some of those other, in some of those more uh, protean places. Yeah, so have an index of suspicion, especially in cases where things maybe aren't going the way that you think that they should on based on your original diagnosis. I think that's, uh, that's terrific advice. Awesome. Well, I know I have learned so much about TB over this last hour. Um, and 
for any of our listeners out there, the next generation of public health and healthcare providers, you're passionate about it. There's room for growth, right? So bring on all of those genius minds to help develop new tests and expand public health mitigation strategies and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, and if you have questions, reach out to us. We can get them passed on to our experts. Otherwise, somebody's always here to help answer questions about these complicated situations because they usually don't present to your uh, hospital or your office looking like Doc Holliday. They're not usually that obvious. So um, they, did, they did a very good job of looking like advanced uh, tuberculosis in that setting, but uh, they called it consumption for a reason, right? So mm-hmm. thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. Yes. No problem. Any last words before we sign off, guys? I don't think so. I really, really. My last words are that even though Rick won't admit it, he is one of the experts. He is. This is true. (laughs) He just puts all the questions to us. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Maybe I know a couple things. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Take care. Yes. And for all of our listeners out there, be sure to join us on the conversation on Twitter and for our next episode of Dirty Drinks. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at Dirty underscore Drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.